Welcome back to our next episode of Your Story, Your Glory. And today, with my co-host, Honey, we have a very special guest. Honey, who do we have today? Okay, so we have a wordsmith, a master storyteller, the voice of the God, a life who has been inspiring millions of other lives with a blend of humor and honesty. My personal favorite and mentor, none other than Mark Brown. Yes, Mark Brown, the 1995 world champion of public speaking. He is a certified speaking professional and executive speaking coach. And today we are going to converse with Mark Brown to listen to his story that has not only brought him glory, but to million others. So without any further delay, honey, let's welcome Mark Brown on the stage. Yay! Welcome Mark to our show, Your Story, Your Glory. We are so glad and excited to hear your story with honey today. Well, the pleasure is mine. You know, I am happy to have met you both. I've had the blessing of traveling to your home country and seeing you there and meeting you there. And then, of course, just also seeing you here in the USA to get a few moments with you for me is really my pleasure. So thank you so much for the invitation. Honey, are you excited? I'm actually speechless. I'm just trying to live here, taking breaths slowly. And <laughs> Mark, I'm really excited for this conversation. And I know I met you first in India, in mm -hmm. Agra. Right. Yes, and from there on, it has been a beautiful bonding that we have developed. It does not matter. You live in US and I live in India, wherever it is. I think the person you are, the beautiful human being that you are, that's what and that's how we are creating these beautiful relationships. So welcome to the show, Mark. Really glad to have you here. Deepak, let's begin. Yes. And let's ask this master storyteller, what is his story that has brought him glory? <laughs> well, some will say that having a world title would have brought you glory. But the truth is, the backstory is always what's most important. When uh, you meet someone who has accomplished something, you say, oh, that's great, that's wonderful. But you have to ask, how did they get there? So I'll give you the Reader's Digest condensed version of my story, because I used to work at Reader's Digest back in the 1990s. But my beginnings were quite, you know, I wouldn't say they were humble, but I grew up in Kingston, Jamaica. To a, in a middle-class family, wonderful mom and dad, an older brother, youngest, younger sister. So I am the middle child, and I still am because they're both still alive, my brother and sister. But growing up in Jamaica, we had a wonderful life. I mean, my dad was a land surveyor, mom was a teacher. And the thing is, when you have a teacher in your house, you have to learn, you have to read. And I was taught very early on that reading makes the ready man. And that began my love of words. So I entered into secondary school. In Jamaica, secondary school begins what they call grade seven here in the USA, 11, about 11 years old. And junior and senior high are all in one building. The thing is, in, in my elementary school, my grandmother was a teacher. I could not get away with anything. In my secondary school, my aunt was a teacher. I could not get away with anything. <laughs> but my strong subjects included... English language and English literature. We had to read a man named Thomas Hardy, an English writer. And when you read Thomas Hardy's books, you must have a dictionary next to you so you can understand what he's saying. And it'll, it'll build your vocabulary. Along the way, my loves were 
football, which Americans call soccer, but I say football because you use your foot to kick a ball, and also music. I have a, a bit of a background in music. I played piano. I took lessons for two or three, for three years, and I quit lessons to play more football, but God gave me a talent there and a gift, so I still play piano to this day, mostly for myself. But I was, I was more of the artsy kind of guy. The music, I was, I was in drama. I was in a few plays. I liked foreign languages. But everything changed for me when I was 18 years old and my father made a decision at the age of 47. God blessed it, man. He was my hero. He still is my hero. He chose to leave Jamaica and start all over again in America with a wife and three teenage children, one of whom was going to university. And all he could afford to send me to New York with, to live with his sister and her two children, was 40 US dollars. Wow. So I had two suitcases of clothes and 40 US dollars living in the Bronx, New York, with an aunt of mine who was kind enough to give me her daughter's twin bed so I could stay there and hopefully get a job and start my life in this place called the Big Apple. And I want to say a word here about family, when family cares for you and loves you. My, my aunt was divorced. She had two children under the age of 11 with some mental problems that they had. We didn't fully understand them back in 1980. This is 41 years ago. But she gave me her daughter's bed and brought her daughter, who was six or seven years old, into her bedroom to sleep with her on a mattress and a box spring. No headboard, no footboard, very simple surroundings in a small apartment in the Bronx. But that's what family does when a family member has a need. Absolutely. And from there, I began to work at a local bank as a bank teller trainee, and I didn't do very well, and I, I lost the job. And, you know, I, 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 I got a, took a test, an aptitude test for computer programming, which I took and I did well with. All this time, I had left this girlfriend of mine in Jamaica. And if anybody is familiar with the old song by Harry Belafonte called Jamaica Farewell, the line goes, sad to say I'm on my way. Won't be back for many a day. My heart is down. My head is turning around. I got to leave a little girl in Kingston Town. Well, I did that. I did leave a little girl in Kingston Town. Her name was Andrea. Her name still is Andrea. <laughs> but two years later, we got married with, little, much, with little, little or nothing in our pockets. And it took her 10 months to get a visa to join me in the USA. But 10 months later, we were together finally with a lot of love and very little money. And I had a job in computer programming. Along the way, we ha I had several job changes. We had two kids, you know, Andrew and Joel. But along the way, I went to work at Reader's Digest in 1992. I kind of established my career as a mainframe computer programmer. And it was there that I joined the Toastmasters Club at Reader's Digest. The longer part of that story, and I'll give you a little snippet, is I first heard about Toastmasters from an uncle of mine who was from Jamaica back in, in the late 1980s. My uncle Courtney was a judge, a Supreme Court judge in Jamaica, and he had come to New York wearing a Toastmasters pin on his lapel, the old gold pin with yeah. the blue T in the middle, the old Toastmasters pin. He told me what it was, and I forgot about it. But I get to read his digest, December 1992, and a friend of mine says, Mark, we have a Toastmasters club you need to join. I said, Toastmasters, my uncle does that. Let me check it out. And for those who wonder or say, wow, it's amazing. Mark Brown is the world champion of public speaking. Here's the truth. I went to that first club meeting and I was very intimidated by the caliber of speakers at Reader's Digest. 
a very reputable company in the States. Yeah. And I was a guest in that club. And anybody who's ever done, gone to Toastmasters, you know you can be a guest. If you like it, sign the form, sign up. It's not very expensive. I didn't sign the first day I went or the second day. Actually, I went for four months before I became a member. That's right. And here's the strange part, friends, Deepak <laughs> and Honey. At Reader's Digest back in 92, 93, the company was paying the dues for the members ah. because they saw the value in, in our employees having good communication skills. Now picture this, the company was willing to pay. It would cost me nothing. Yeah. It still took me four months to sign that sheet and become officially a member of the Reader's Digest Toastmasters Club in 1993 in the spring. And I, you know, I, I tried to learn and my icebreaker, I printed out my entire speech on computer paper and I forgot to double space. It was hard to read, <laughs> but I gave, I literally read my icebreaker again, for those who say, man, I could never be a world champion. Trust me. If this skinny, not need buck teeth, Jamaican kid can be a world champion. What's holding you back? Absolutely. As you can see already, my story is not one that's full of glory, it's a human story. And so many of us consider ourselves inferior or not worthy, or my story is not important. Your story can inspire somebody else. And I found myself making the mistake. I thought, well, you know, it's my story. I've lived it, so what? Someone else says, what a great story. Absolutely. But to me, my story is just my life, kind of mundane. Well, here is a Markism that I share with my clients, my students. I'm a, I'm a speaking coach as well. Deepak, you know that. You and I work together. I say, your story right, may seem to you to be mundane, but one person's mundane is another person's magnificent. Wow. One person's mundane is another person's magnificent. And as the story continues, I joined Toastmasters back in 1993, and I remember... In November of 1993, I saw a copy of the Toastmaster magazine that was really interesting. The November 93 issue had two photographs on the cover. It had Otis Williams Jr., the 1993 world champion. Mm -hmm. Sorry, the 1993 world champion, Otis Williams, receiving his trophy. And Dana Lamont, the 1992 world champion, receiving his trophy. And I thought to myself, these guys are world champion speakers. There is no way I could ever do that. And I completely forgot about it. The following February or March, my club had a club contest. I was going to be the model speaker or the test speaker for the evaluation contest. And one of the speech contestants who was doing international speech or ISC, as my friends in India always call it, <laughs> he had to drop out at the last minute. And I received a phone call about three hours before the contest, my club mentor said, Mark, Dennis can't compete. I know you plan to be a test speaker. Will you take his place? Being Jamaican, I said, yeah, man, no problem, man. <laughs> <laughs> and the truth is my speech was actually three or four bullet points on a three by five card. I hadn't prepared a script for a speech. I was that green, I was that naive. I didn't think about it. It turns out though, I gave my speech and I was declared the winner of my club contest, which I thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> and I was told, wait, no, no, you know, there's more than that. So what do you mean? You must now go to the area contest. I said, area contest, what's that? what's that? It's bigger than the club and you have to compete as a club champion for the next level. I said, okay, when is the contest? They said, tonight. 
was like, what? <laughs> For those involved in club leadership, do not schedule or schedule your club contest the same day as an area contest. Do not do that. When I went to the area contest, I finished second. I thought I was done. But I was told, no, you get to compete again. I said, what do you mean? I lost. Yes, but in Toastmasters, there's a little known rule that says in an area with four or fewer clubs, the district can allow first and second to advance. You get a second shot. I said, okay, fine. And I went, when's the division contest? In a couple of weeks, fine. I went to the division. I won the division contest. I said, great, I'm done. No, 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 no. There's more. What do you mean there's more? You must now go to district. I said, what's district? Let me guess. It's bigger than the division, right? Yes. Where's it going to be and when? It's going to be in New Jersey on a Sunday. I live in New York. I'm like, well, wait, first of all, New Jersey, I don't know where I'm going. And two, Sunday, I go to church. I need God. Trust me, I need God. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they said, no, you, you are our district, our division champion. You got to go. I said, fine. So I went to my district contest. I get to the district conference in time for the contest. And there's 200 people in a ballroom at these lunch tables, all dressed nicely. I don't know anybody there. And I'm number seven of nine contestants at my district contest. And I have a prop and I have my notes in my head. I have still not yet written a script. I begin to deliver my speech and something unusual happens. People are laughing. <laughs> they find my corny jokes amusing. So I go with the flow. They, I drop a line. They laugh. This is cool. I'm enjoying it. And the friend who I came with, I'm going to call him Josh, was in the back of the room. And he's waving at me. <laughs> I guess he was saying it. Well, I should keep quiet because I'm going over time. I wrap my speech up. I go back and I sit back there. He says, Mark, I think we're over time. I said, it's fine. I had fun. That was my attitude. And they announced me as the winner of the District 46 ISC in 1994. And I thought, okay, I'll take it cool. But someone told me later, and they shouldn't have done this because the ballots and the time of support should be destroyed after the contest. But I found out I had spoken for seven minutes and 29 seconds. If I'd taken a deep breath and coughed, I'd have gone over time. But I was told, now you got to go to the region finals which of course is now called a semifinal. But back in the dark ages in the previous millennium, it was called regional <laughs> in Canada. And you had to deliver a second speech. Toastmasters now require two speeches. Yeah. In my day, you had to do three different speeches. Wow. And I had to go to St. John, New Brunswick, Canada with a brand new speech. I kind of put something together. I, you know, I threw it together. I got ready, went to, to, to St. John, New Brunswick. And I gave my speech there and I was declared the winner of that contest in 1994. By then I realized that this could eventually lead to the world championship. And then I remembered Otis Williams Jr., Dana Lamont, world champions. Wait, the contest I'm doing is the one that they won. And I recall I was at Reader's Digest one afternoon with my club president, Mr. Michael Kane, who now lives in Florida. I said, Mark, you don't get this. This is big. This is big. This is big, big, big. I was like, okay. I still didn't get how big this was supposed to be. But at the time, Andrea was pregnant with her third, David. She was big pregnant. It was August. He was born in October. So she was seven months pregnant. And we flew with our two older kids, Andrina and Joel, to Louisville, Kentucky from New York to compete in the world championships. And I tell you what, it was something else. I am speaker number one on the, on the list 
in the Toastmasters World Championship of Public Speaking in 1994. And for a second, I go, I'm first. Oh my God, what do I do? And I said, just do your best. Mm. Just do your best. And then the final, I actually forgot one of my lines. And I, of course, you won't see this because it's an old, old video. But VHS, yes, VHS, back in the days. Millennials in the room, a VHS looks like a, like a big, um, never mind, just Google it. Just Google it or ask Siri. She'll tell you what a VHS is. <laughs> but I, I, I forgot a line and I just kind of, oh, that can be so sad. I know. But I, I, I recovered and I got through my speech. Did not win, did not place, did not show. We had 1,800 people there. And then back then, it was on a Saturday morning, big event. And when it was over, the conference ended like lunchtime, you know, and the room cleared out very quickly. Everybody was gone. And there's me with little Joel in my lap crying. And a man literally walks into my life. His name is David Brooks, the 1990 world champion. And he says, Mark, I don't want, I don't mean to interrupt, interrupt a tender family moment, but I may not see you again. And I want you to know you're talented. And if you ever need any help, just give me a call. Here's my card. And he was gone. David Brooks. I knew whose name was. I'd heard him on an audio cassette. Now, millennials, an audio cassette is a small recording. <laughs> just Google it, okay? <laughs> that was Saturday afternoon. And Sunday, I got home from, from Kentucky, dropped my bags, got his card, and called David Brooks immediately. I said, hello, David Brooks? Yes. It's, it's Mark Brown. Do you know who I am? He said, Mark, I met you yesterday. I know who you are. I said, okay, you promised to help me, will you? And he said, yes. And that began, began a long-distance mentoring relationship between David Brooks from Austin, Texas, and me from Mount Vernon, New York. And over time, we back and forth. And we did the old school way. We did phone, right? Like phone, but it wasn't this kind of phone. It was phone and fax. Now, millennials, a fax machine looks like a, print, a copier. You put paper in it and just Google it, okay? <laughs> just, just Google it. But he was my mentor by phone and fax. I would work on my speeches, particularly at district level in 95. And I would type them up on an old programming, an old computer software app called WordPerfect. And I'd print them off at work. I'd go to the fax machine at work and I'd fax my cover sheet with my comments and my questions. And I'd fax my script to David Brooks and we'd fax them back to me. And I put so many hours in that year between district and region to get my way to the final. And, and I won my district contest in 95. And I, you know, I, I think I'd done well. I got to my regional final in Maryland and but I won that contest and I qualified for the final nice. and the thing is this Deepak and honey when I got to the final in 94 and did not win I had in mind the speech I would give in the final in 95 if I got back there the funny thing is in 95 when I went back I lost at the club level but there's a rule in Toastmasters that says in an area with four or fewer clubs the club can send first and second place. Had it not been that case, you would never be talking to me today. Who knows who you talked to today? Somebody else. But I was, I was second at my club and I won everything else, got to the final. And I said, good, I'm ready to give the speech that I planned to give a year ago. And I worked on it for six weeks and it was trash. It was not good. And with David's wisdom and guidance, I changed my speech with two and a half weeks to go and came up with a different speech called a second chance. Only David Brooks, my family and my stage coaches in New York City 
Herbert and Randy Gedalia ever saw me give that speech until that Saturday morning. Nobody else saw it. And when I gave it, I felt I did a good job and I was able to reach the audience well. Yes. But the thing is this, I told you that David offered to help me in 94 after I lost. It turns out he offered to help eight other eight finalists who did not win. But I was the only one who said yes. So herein lies the lesson. When someone who is where you want to be offers to help you, say yes. When someone who is where you want to be offers to help you get there, say yes. And I was blessed enough to win the world championship that year. My family was with me in San Diego, my wife, my kids. My son David was, what, maybe eight and a half months old. And I've actually, I, I found something. I don't know if it's here. If I find it, I'll, I'll show it to you. But I just saw a picture of, of David with me. Uh, it's not here. I think I made a mess. And, oh, here it is. He's now 27. That's me holding him by the pool <laughs> the yeah, day I won the contest. Yes. <laughs> and 27 years later, you know, I have had the blessing of helping other individuals and coaching other speakers, not only Toastmasters, but also professionals. And so you might, you might say part of my glory is having accomplished this, but with the glory comes the responsibility. Who else can you help? Now, true, I am a speaking coach by profession. I do get paid for this. But along the way, I have had a hand in supporting several other finalists, semi-finalists, and world champions, like the late, great LaShonda Rundles from 2008, uh, just a wonderful human being. I helped Jim Key, who won in 2003 after losing in 01 and 02, coming second both times. Mike Carr, recently, I worked with him two years ago when he was working on his on his semi-final speech but i get to do that i get to help other people and when we have success part of what we i think our responsibility is to share what we have learned yes i have no problem getting paid for my expertise you got 27 years of, of experience here right. so it's worth i think it's worthwhile for people to invest their time and money i have paid i have paid other people for help as well it's how business works but i also opt and choose to Gratis help other individuals at times because I believe there's value in giving away your expertise. Yes, you are worth the money, certainly get paid. Absolutely. But in your heart, you must know there are those who could use your help. Absolutely. And they, they and you give it, just give it away. Just, you know, not everything we do has to be for money. Absolutely. Do it because you love human beings. Absolutely. Do it because you can share and, and you can lift someone. Do it because it's the right thing to do. I will not force anyone, but I will say follow your heart. And do what you believe is best. So over the last 27 years, well, actually 29 years since I first set foot in a Toastmasters meeting, the journey has been up and down. And some may say, what a glorious journey. Along the way, I joined the National Speaker Association. I became a certified speaking professional, which is difficult to get, but I got that. I've traveled the world. I was blessed enough to speak on five different continents. I've been to India several times, including Agra uh-huh, and Delhi, <laughs> where, where Honey, now, now Deepak, Honey speaks well of me. She likes me. I think Honey loves me, but she really loves my wife. 
and that happens to everybody. People like me, but they love Andrea. I mean, when you meet my wife, you will know what I mean by that. She is absolutely Andrea amazing. Andrea is amazing, no doubt. You know, I always but, but, on, uh, messaging. Like we, we are in touch, so we keep on. Yes, you, yes, yeah. She does email. She does send you messages as well. But you know, the thing is, my point is this, Deepa. People think about your story and your glory. Yeah. It does sound like a glorious story. Yeah. But here is the harsh truth behind that. This may surprise people, but even when you get up to a place of glory, as we say, life happens, life yeah. hits you, life's realities are there, you have, you have loss, you have financial reversal. I mean, I lost a, a, a high paying job in 2015, I had yeah. to start all over again on my own as an entrepreneur with zero entrepreneurial experience. I'm not back at the income I used to learn six years ago or earn six years ago. I'm not. It's yeah. been a struggle. It's real life. But that's also part of your story. Absolutely. absolutely. Your story isn't always the glorious, happy bits. This, your story is the, the honest, gritty, authentic truth about you, what you live in. And so many people, we hold them high on a pedestal. We admire them. They look good. They smell good. They sound good. They do well. And they drive nice vehicles, live in nice homes. And that's wonderful. But we don't know what their, their life can really be like. Yes. And that's why when I talk about telling stories and storytelling, I say, tell your story from your life and your experience, no matter what it may be. Absolutely. Because I say authenticity plus vulnerability equals credibility. Absolutely. Another Markism. I'll say that again. Authenticity plus vulnerability equals credibility. And here's why I say that, Deepak and Hun. I'll say why I say, why I say that. Because your audience, by and large, is you. And if your audience can identify with you or some character in their story, they can say, yeah, I can do that. I can believe that. Yes, I've experienced that. Oh, yeah. They know how I feel. Oh, that speaker, Honey Kanduja, she gets me because she's been there herself. She understands. <laughs> so your story, Deepak, of being in India and the USA and some tough choices you had to make regarding career and family and the goals you've set, that's part of your experience. Absolutely. It could be in your relationships, having something you, you hope to happen and it fall through. It could have been a romance that died. It could have been a job you were sure you were going to get and it didn't happen. That's the stuff that real life is made of. And that's what audiences connect with. So the glory of your story isn't always the happy bits. The glory of your story is the authenticity, Absolutely. the realism. The genuine experience that you have is the laughter and the tears. It's the joy and the sorrows. It's the happiness and the sadness. It's the love gain and the love lost. It's the contract won and the job that faded away. It's, it's your full life experience. That's what audiences need from us. That's where they get their answers and solutions from. So your story isn't always the bright glory of the stars and spotlights. No. The glory of your story is the authenticity of yeah. your story. And I encourage all my clients to tell your story from your heart. Don't always give us numbers and data and stats. Yes. And the cool thing is this, our stories continue. The book is not closed. The story continues. Yes. The story of family continues. The story of our own joys and our struggles continues. And you know what? The storybook never closes until we're gone. And even after we're gone, when somebody reads that story, may they find something valuable there as well.
ask about no i think a, a lot of people who are listening to us and especially they can relate to your story that there are a lot of toast masters here when they go to their ice breaker they mm. read their ice breaker yeah. so and this is a great hope <laughs> that they can become world champion Yes. Nobody starts out with a trophy. Absolutely. Yeah. We all have to walk the journey. Yes. Some people yes. for me it was a two-year journey to the trophy. Okay, it took me two years. Some people like Ed Tate will brag, my friend Ed Tate, well, I went once and I won. That's fine. You know, that Doc Jack Elliot, the 2011 world champion. I competed against him in 1994. He was third in 1994, and that was not his first final. Jacques Elliot Jacques Elliot's first final was in 1990 against David Brooks. Oh. It took him 21 years to win the world championship. That's his journey. That's his story for his glory. Absolutely. Don't seek to live someone else's story. Yeah. Live your life. Tell your story because your story will not only have your glory but it has something of value for even one person in the audience yes. if your objective is not to seek glory but to share glory allow me to illustrate that for a second for you i told you i gave you the readers digest condensed version of my story there is one detail i omitted in 1995 after i won my district 46 contest i was living in new york at the time i now live in the state of georgia even though i'm more often in a state of confusion uh, but <laughs> i was living in new york we went to to maryland and i had this wonderful speech i knew it was going to be the one to, to deliver because i had hit a dry spot preparing it and i was in my office one day at readers digest and i had a i just felt this wave of inspiration to write my story now it might freak people in the audience out but just bear with me and i began to furiously type on my computer type type typing away took a breath it looked good and then i heard someone say that's the speech you have to give when you get to maryland because there will be someone there who needs to hear it yeah it's after office after office hours and i know the cleaning crew who comes in every evening to clean up the offices so i turn around and wonder why is this guy looking at my speech over my shoulder when i'm typing it in i turn around and there is no one there i push my chair back my rolling chair push back open the door look outside there's nobody anywhere i am alone in the office after 7 p.m. and it hit me and again i don't mean to make anybody think woo this guy is kind of weird but listen to me i don't often hear the voice of god but this time i am absolutely positively convinced it was the voice of god saying you must deliver that message there will be someone there who needs to hear it i parked it i got to Columbia Maryland in June of 1995 for my regional contest and i remember kneeling at my bedside in the hotel saying god i really want to go to the final i want to win this thing but because you said to do this i want to do it for that purpose i got to the contest gave my speech and the president of toastmasters pauline shirley 94 president was there and she was congratulating me she told me mark good job one thing you must do going forward double your energy i said yes ma'am the crowd pressed in high five pat on the back handshake great speech mark nobody died that was awesome thank you <laughs> and then i saw her a woman tall maybe 5 foot 8 inches tall brown hair 
eyes red, tears on her face, kind of made her way through the crowd. And she got to me right up here and said, amidst her tears, thank you, Mark. That speech was for me. And I said, you're the one. She said, what? I said, never mind. Thank you. Thank you. And ever since that day, Deepak and Honey, I know, for, for me, Mark Brown, I know my purpose is not to seek the glory, but to share the story. Absolutely. And my biggest fear as a presenter to this day is that I go on a platform, physical or virtual, and deliver a speech and not give my audience something of value. And you both know me. You both see me do keynotes. You both see me do workshops. We're friends. We talk. Yeah. You know where my heart is. Yes. If I don't give my audience value, I shouldn't be there. But that for me was a pivotal turning point in the, in the understanding for me that it's not about my glory. Yeah. You see, I believe your story is about you, but it's for your audience. Your story is about you, but it's for your audience. And if they can't derive value, you need to check your story. Or more importantly, check your motives. Absolutely. Your story is not for your glory. Yeah. It's about you, and it's for them. So I just share that to give you the context of why my mindset shifted back in 95. My goodness, 26 years ago, when I first had to come to terms with the truth and the power and the value of my story. So there it is. Thank you so much. So I think that's amazing. Isn't it, Deepak? Yes. I mean, there are a lot of keepers that I've been writing. I'm oh. just like, I have learned it from Mark. But Mark, <laughs> uh, as you share, uh, as you got the glory, and uh, definitely there's always some sadness, there are always some sorrows. I'm very sure there would be some personal challenges in your journey as well, as a world champion, as a professional speaker, as a speaking coach, as a husband, as a father, would you like to share one of the low moments of your story with us? Anyone which changed your life or kind of made an impact on you? Well, look, low, low points in life are a reality. As I said, I was being paid very, very well by a company between 1998 and 2015. I've been paid very, very well to travel across North America and deliver presentations. I mean, I had a corporate American Express card. They paid for my flights, my hotel. It was a pretty good deal to be in. But the company chose to eliminate my position in the summer of 2015, six years ago. And my income was gone. My benefits, no medical benefits, everything was gone. And I had to start all over again. And see, back in the, back in the day, the good news was, they booked me. They had, I had, they had schools and groups who'd wait a year for Mark Brown to come. I would fly to New York or, or Connecticut and meet with my assistant in the summertime. We'd plan out my schedule or schedule if you're American, months out where I was going to be. And I was getting booked for these presentations. I was getting paid a salary and benefits for all of this. It was really wonderful. I had expenses being paid. That was the good news. The bad news was they were booking me out for you know six months out, a year out sometimes, and I didn't lift a finger. I had, I had zero expertise in being an entrepreneur. So when the job went away, I went through a series of different things that led to a financial reversal as well. So I had to start from scratch 
as a solopreneur or an entrepreneur building his own business with no business acumen, no business training. Because remember, I came to America and I was 18 with $40. I didn't go to university. I don't have a university degree. I went from bank teller to computer programmer to speaker. So I didn't know the first thing about a speaking business. So in the last six years, I have fallen down so many times. I've had so many financial risks. I've suffered so much loss. I've made so many bad decisions that I'm still, quote unquote, digging myself out from under. Now, Toastmasters were hearing this. This might surprise you. But I said earlier, your story is about real life. It happened not once, Maybe. not twice, but three times in the last couple of years. And then the pandemic hit. So in terms of low points, yeah, financially, I had a horrendous year during the pandemic. As a matter of fact, next week, I'm going to be on a plane to my first live presentation in 23 months. My last live where I had to fly somewhere was December of 2019. I've been doing virtual ever since. Yeah. So the pandemic was not good for us. Being a world champion and the CSP does not exempt me from life. So part of your story, as you say now, as you ask the question, honey, part of your story is the low points, yeah. the struggles. Well, here's the best part of my low point. Andrea and I, in April of 2012, uh, 22, will celebrate 40 years of marriage. And through all of that, she has been by my side. We made a commitment on April 17, 1982. Some folk here in this weren't born yet, and that's okay. We made a commitment with the old traditional marriage vows in, the, in North America, in, in the West, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer. And believe me, we have had better and worse. We have had richer and poorer. We have had sickness and health. Because I almost died back in 1993. And my wife has been there through all of it. So it is my hope, my wish, and my prayer that if you, not just you, Deepak and, and Honey, but you who are watching or listening to this are going through difficult times, that you will have someone beside you, richer for poorer, sickness and health. It may not be a marriage partner. It could be a family member, but my family has always been together with me. Thank you, Mark, uh, for sharing this part of your story. And now I would like You're a funny. little bit from uh, your story to the technical aspects of your skill. I always heard you... <laughs> Uh, talking about story in 3D. Story in 3D? Yeah. Ah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I'm always uh, inspired uh, by you, your, this concept. I would like you to elaborate a little bit about this 3D concept to our audience. Well, 3D really means three-dimensional. And I think of a photograph as a one-dimensional photograph. You get 3D glasses, you can almost see through it. It feels real. Wow, it's so close to me. Well, our stories can be that way too. Our stories can be one-dimensional. It's flat. And what happens often is we tell stories using narration. We talk about what happened. You know, I went down the street that day and I saw some guy and two guys were fighting. And then the cops came and they broke it up and I went about my business. That's one-dimensional. You're reporting. I say don't report transport don't report transport 3d means they get a three-dimensional experience the idea of using dialogue having the audience being brought into the scene having if it's experiential you want to you want to convert a one-dimensional story 
into a three-dimensional experience. And you do that with the language that you use and, in, and, how, and the characters that you see. Also, the dialogue of the characters to make it even that much more real. So very simply put, I could say, yes, I was going down the street one day and it was, there was a fender bender and two guys got into a fight and the cops came, they caught one guy off and the story was over. That's fine, we, I hear about that. But if I tell you that a beautiful spring day I happened to walk downtown Main Street to go shopping, I wanted to buy my wife a hot muffin for, just as a, a treat for her. And I heard this crash down the street and I looked and I saw a collision. It was a small sedan and a larger SUV and the sedan was really in bad shape. And to my surprise, the driver jumped out of the sand. He was a big guy. He's like, you know, maybe six foot tall, 200 pounds. And the other driver was smaller, but they were both really angry. And they began to say words I would not want to repeat to you. A crowd began to gather. And next thing I know, these guys are throwing blows and they're punching. Somebody called 911. The cops came up. We hear the siren. And they came quick. It was downtown. They came in so fast. The cops' cars creaked to a halt. And nobody could get these guys apart. One cop pulled his guns. Hey, guys, cut it out right now. Stop it. His partner came out, put the guy on the ground. They slapped cuffs on him, and they put the guy in the back of the car. You know, people are, everybody's got their, they the cameras, click, 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 click. And nobody really did touch anything. But I thought, myself, man, this could have gotten scary. Because I live in the state of Georgia. And in Georgia, people carry guns. And I'm so thankful nobody pulled this gun out. And for five minutes, I forgot about Andrea's muffin. But I saw that the cop had the big guy in the cuffs who was in the car. The other guy gave the report of what would happen. A few witnesses are also saying, yeah, we saw when the guy came out and the big guy punched him in the head. I didn't want to stay around because it's drama. The cops had control, but I knew I had one goal that day. I wanted to bring my wife, Andrea, that warm blueberry muffin that I promised to get her. And so I went home. It took a long time to say that, but I saw two guys fighting. The cops came and arrested him. That's, I told it. I related that. Absolutely. But what was the difference in the other version? Let me tell you. Yeah, go ahead. I was I was feeling as if I was standing there at the situation yeah. and watching everything happening. Well, what, yeah. th 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 tell me one thing you saw, Deepak. One thing that you saw in the second version. What did so, you see? So I saw that guys fighting, you know, and you know, shouting at each other, and and this guy yeah. coming out of the car. The car is already and so everything I saw it, Mark. Everything. But that's three. Really, honey, what did you see? Even I could see the characters, the fat guy, the small guy, the yeah. guys fighting, clicking the pictures. And then, I mean, and you as a narrator still uh, wanting to have that blueberry muffin. I mean, the emotion, the characters, uh, the, uh, it, I mean, I would see uh, the excitement of the fight scene. I think it was every, like, I was right there, just like people said, I was there. And that's a 3D experience. You yeah. can relate the story and report what happened, wow. but if you transport the audience, I even turned, I pointed to where it was. So if you can transport the audience to the scene and make them part of the scene, they experience it. And I bet you probably think of a time, you can't easily think of a time you saw somebody else fighting. I mentioned getting your cell phone out to take pictures. You know, when the audience can experience the scene, it becomes more meaningful to them. And it may, it may even trigger a memory of their own. Absolutely. No, you and the emotional right. piece, I didn't, I didn't lose my mission. My mission was to get a warm blueberry muffin. And I held it up so you could almost see it to bring that to my wife. Uh, when I was listening to it, I had two different emotions. When you were telling me that 
all this story and i was feeling these guys are fighting and all this thing yeah. and as you said my, my mission is to get the muffin yes <laughs> my came to my mind i started feeling very nice <laughs> <laughs> but see speaking is also emotional and a good story will give an audience an emotional experience as well yeah. Yeah. because it is it is the emotions that prompt us to act absolutely because you want your audience to feel good but what do they do with your story how can the story inspire them move them absolutely. and if when you tell your story the audience responds in a way they'll take some kind of action and maybe you've told a story well this was an excellent demonstration of 3d yes. telling absolutely I mean, we were there in that storytelling model deepak and what an amazing experience absolutely. and and i'll quickly jump into one of my favorite element mark yeah the blueberry muffin the people fighting there you picking up the phone and showing the selfie i think uh, i mean i'm personally the fan of your platform skill how you play around with different parts like i'm seeing you on a screen right now right i yeah. can still visualize muffin at one side uh, people fighting at one side uh, cop being called by 911 everything can you please share us with us uh, some insights on these platform skills not just for the stage but for the virtual screen that we are operating in now right now and i'm very sure it is not just for toastmaster speeches but more essential for a professional speaker for a leader who's sharing mm. his story or story at the corporate or I'll any other presentation yeah. any, yeah. any well, presentation of life well the thing is if you're going to give somebody an experience you have to give them something to look at that they can see visualize and experience and even though the screen may be small you can still manipulate the screen and the stage to give the audience a stronger visual excuse me those who watched the toastmasters world championships in 2020 and 21 will see how mike car and nitai yer levy used the camera in yeah. very meaningful ways and that's wonderful now the beauty is on a on a large physical stage you can decide where certain scenes can take place mohammed katani did that when he was doing his speech in the final 2020 was it 15 okay put what year it was my brain is kind of soft but you can you can use you can assign specific spots on stage to depict certain scenes it's more difficult when you have a screen but even then you can still use a space on the screen you can indicate where things take place you can use the depth of the screen and even angles he was there she was there when you talk to people have a conversation with the person if i'm talking about a conversation between a father and son i won't say well son you should do that why dad i told you to do that but dad i don't want to go to the camera I'm actually having a conversation with the audience. But if I as a father say, "Hey son, if you clean your room, I will take you to the ball game and get you ice cream." Okay? Okay, dad, I'll do it. Now dad looks to the side and down to his son. So when son talks, he looks up and talks to dad. It's a simple motion, but you can see the visual of a conversation. Don't talk to the camera in conversation. You can change your characters. by having one per character have a different kind of voice a deeper voice son okay okay dad it's a small change but you hear a different voice there's so many nuances to this i could do 2 hours on just platform skills alone i'm not going to do that here <laughs> my point being you can use the space you have 
front and back, side to side, even angles to depict certain emotions and depict different characters. And when you become the characters, become the characters. If, you, if you're skilled enough to use a different accent for different characters, then by all means do that. But simple enough, just a, a change in pitch can be different. One character has this voice, another has this voice, and the child has this voice. Yeah. No, great, great, mother. you don't need to do all this great. <laughs> no, just enough. And here's a key. Here's the thing. If you record yourself doing this and just, just play back the audio, if you can hear a different voice, your audience can too. Yeah. But it comes over time and practice. So I always tell my clients, record yourself. Right now we're in a virtual world. Record yeah. yourself on Zoom and play it back and ask yourself, is that what I want the audience to see and hear? You can you can help yourself. Yes, thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for demonstrating this platform yeah. skills. I think that was amazing. Uh, the demonstration, the experience of us actually so going I, through that platform. Yeah, I was feeling Mark. It's himself is a three D guy. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to ask Mark, do you do a detailed course on platform skills or the three D storytelling model? That's, that's, that's a challenge I have to work on because I, I do want to develop a couple of different courses. Right now, I'm coaching individual speakers as well as preparing some keynotes, but I need to actually record a series on that particular, uh, that particular skill and make it available to those who may want to purchase yeah. what I have or learn from me. Yeah. And I we guess I'll send, I'll send the first free copy to Honey Can Do so. <laughs> oh my god i Which was first? about to say i will be the first one to register for that course <laughs> so but um yeah and i right now i do also work with darren lacroix at state time university yeah. we do three-day workshops together and we we do weekly coaching calls deepak's been aware he's been involved in that as well mm -hmm. so i find i found different ways to use my skills in different forums i've also built some collaborative relationships as long as being an as well as being an entrepreneur and as part of life you know you have to find different ways to make things yes. work and uh, certainly since i know that honey would do a course like that i may need to prepare a, a honey can do your platform skills course we'll see <laughs> oh my god i'm really privileged for that and yes we'll really look forward to it uh, mark last question uh, yes. a couple of questions more uh, one small uh, thing that i want to know from you is from my journey of Toastmasters and from yeah. many people's journeys of Toastmasters, sometimes I have felt that a lot of people get so consumed by Toastmasters that they think this is the only uh, arena where you can learn speaking. And mm. if you don't see anything outside Toastmasters, you normally don't get to know. And that was yeah. me a few years back. Okay, till the time I got exposure to uh, you guys and met Darren Lacroix in 2018 and met you so what, what is your message? Because a lot of Toastmasters will be listening to this podcast. I want people to explore speaking in different ways. So uh, what is your message uh, to Toastmasters? Toastmasters is a wonderful organization. It just changed my life. I will say that right away. It's a great place to learn. Now, you and I, Deepak, are also members of the National Speakers Association. Yeah. And there are those who have said over the years, that's for professional speakers. And there is also a global speakers federation that covers pro speakers all over the world in different countries. But the, the running joke for the, longest, for the longest while was Toastmasters will teach you how to speak and the NSA will teach you how to get paid. The truth is both organizations can be complementary. Now the NSA, the National 
Speakers Association is for those who want to pursue professional speaking. But there are also other opportunities. I think Toastmasters is a wonderful learning laboratory, especially if you want to advance as a speaker and to, and to speak professionally. It's a wonderful way to learn. But there are also other opportunities to practice. Now, there are also programs you can learn from. You can be a part of, an, of there are various programs you can learn from. I work with Darren LaCroix right now yeah. at Stage Time University. It's a subscription program. We built a community of members all over the world and they learn the core skills of speaking. We have programs on storytelling and how to own the state. We have coaching programs. We help teach you how to build a keynote. We do a three-day program with Ed Tate, Darren and I about how to master virtual presentations. There's lots you can learn from Stage Time University as well. You know, just go look up, just check us out at Stage Time University. But you also want to take advantage of opportunities to speak. So you're learning Toastmasters, but you can speak at your local service club, maybe a Rotary or a Kiwanis or a Lions Club. If you have a chance, go to a youth organization, the YMCA, YWCA, Boys and Girls Clubs. Within your community, how can you serve your community with the skills that you have? If you become proficient in a Toastmasters club, does your, does your district have a speaker's bureau? Is your club of a speaker's bureau where you can go and give, give talks to encourage people. Talk to young people in schools. Inspire small children. You can practice there. But you, you certainly you can learn in Toastmasters. But Toastmasters is not the only place you can learn the skill. Great rudiments there and also wonderful leadership skills. Absolutely. But use the skills. And sometimes, quite frankly, if you really want to push ahead, it might be wise to consider hiring a speaking coach. Yes, yes. I am not saying you must hire me. <laughs> I am not inexpensive because of my credentials and my reputation. And if you want to do that, that's fine. You can certainly go and check me out at markbrownspeaks.com. Is a coaching page there. I'm not saying you must do that. But if you believe you need to hire someone to help you, by all means, do so. But check them out. Have a conversation first. Make sure you're a fit, that you're compatible. Not everyone who is qualified is right for you. Absolutely. And I'll tell you the truth. I've had people come to me and I say, no, no, don't come to me. Go to them. And it's now public knowledge. I know last, last uh, summer, this past summer, our current world champion, Verity Price, had approached me for coaching. And I sent her to somebody she had met before. I said, no, you, have, you know Lance. You've met Lance before. You've also talked with him before. Don't no, go back to Lance. I will don't work with me. You go to Lance. And he she went to work with Lance. And as you know, she became the world champion. And I'm happy she did not work with me because it wasn't the appropriate time. And I wasn't the best fit for her in that context. Yeah. So if you think you need to get help, find someone you can work with. And if that's beyond your, your reach right now, who could be a mentor within your Toastmasters club? Or is there somebody you admire who speaks well, who could spend some time and invest some time in you? Because the time is going to come, part of your story and your glory when you will mentor someone else. Thank you, Mark. Mark, you are one of the most inspirational speakers in the world today, right? And I personally love the way you blend humor with honesty, with authenticity, and share your story so sincerely that you touch hearts. You touch hearts of the people across the world. I heard you deliver a sermon at a church, though it was virtual, in the COVID time, but I still remember it moved and inspired me and I had goosebumps and I had tears in my eyes and I still remember that uh, very fondly. It was a Facebook live thing. And um, you have that strong voice as well, like just in Toastmaster, we say God's uh, voice. 
the voice of god yes yeah voice of god and uh, i mean i remember in international convention 2018 in chicago the moment you enter that room and you uh, hear mark's voice ladies and gentlemen and i mean from the voice to inspiration from that inspiration to touching and moving people's life what is that one inspiration that you would like to leave people with not just for speaking but for living life really well i think as a human being you are an amazing person and i really adore that so definitely a sermon would be a long speech and deepak will kill me if i ask you to <laughs> no, do that no there's no sermon here <laughs> but uh, but yes give us some inspiration to be a better human being all i can say is this you know i was listening to a song last night on youtube it's an old christian song by a group of guys four guys called for him and the title is this when i am gone yeah and the first part of the chorus asked this question when i am gone what will they say when i'm gone yeah so the question becomes not just how will the world remember you but why will the world remember you when you are gone what will they say and why will they say it because when i am gone this may sound odd to you i don't want people to think of me as oh he was a good world champion that's not to me that is not valuable in 2008 lashonda rundles who has since passed on in her speech said we're not half afraid of dying as we are of fearing that people will not remember that we're even here my hope is that when i am gone people won't think of me as having been a great speaker but what value did i bring to their lives did i inspire them will they say he was a good man he took care of his wife and kids he was honest he had integrity will they say that he made me realize that you know my life is worth something we all can't be quote unquote inspirational speakers but we can live our lives in such a way that people will will respect us with integrity they'll respect our honesty our forthrightness they'll see that we cared about human beings that we lived lives of love and even when things were hard we maintained the faith that we had and did our best to have good relationships i love what it was a man named Saul of Tarsus those who are christians call him saint paul the apostle apostle and he said this as much as possible as far as it depends on you live at peace with all men and women so i want to i i would encourage you to live a life that people will remember for good reasons even in difficult seasons they will not question your integrity the heart you have the way you live the love you have for other people when you make a mistake you confess it you admit it you make it right uh, all of the above it's it's just, it's it's life you know i am far from perfect just ask my kids i am far from perfect it's the striving it's the effort it's the it's the desire every day to live the best life that you can not so much by what you can get i don't have a whole lot but the people in my life my relationships uh, that's really meaningful and i'm thankful for the blessings i have it need not be about great financial wealth and wishes riches money is a wonderful tool but it's not defined by that it's 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 how we choose to live our lives by what we say 
what we do and how we live. And hopefully, when you and I are gone from this earth and our name comes up, they'll say, yeah. While they were here, they had an impact which has rippled down through the ages to this day. And it's the name, Honey Kanduja, Deepak Sharma, and Martin Brown, our names that people will remember for the right reasons. So live a meaningful life with honesty, character, integrity, courage, and love for your fellow man. It's hard to go wrong when you do that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. And that's the wonderful message and inspiration to close our conversation with. What do you say, Deepak? Absolutely, Mark. It was not a podcast. It was like inspiration for us also. It was a, just a lovely time spending conversing with you during this uh, last 45 minutes. Thank you so much for taking our time. I know you have many commitments back to back, uh, many coaching sessions, but taking our time for us, uh, it was our pleasure. And for me, it has been special because I've been uh, interacting with you for so long on various uh, things, speeches, otherwise. And I'm so glad that I, when I came to US, it was my feeling that yes, Mark Brown is there. Will... <laughs> You're very kind, my friend. Very kind. Yeah. Deepak, you are inspiring me to move to US, is it? Yeah, anytime. <laughs> Welcome. Cool. I hope to see you very soon, Mark, uh, in person in US. And I think this was a beautiful session. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I'm very sure for all those who get to listen it on a podcast or watch it on the YouTube, they are definitely going to be inspired, not just for speeches, but for life. So thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. It was a pleasure hosting you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, my friends, for listening to our podcast with Mark Brown, How to Tell Stories in 3D. Come back again for the next episode. Till then, take care of yourself and your family. Bye-bye.